right, this is from the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Awesome. Thank you. We have been, for about the past month or so, taking a look at this uh, famous small uh, book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures called Jonah, the book of Jonah. And we're looking at it because uh, there's this major theme that is, that is shot through this book and is really shot through the whole Bible. It's this, this theme of the mission of God, that God has this deep desire to want to show and extend His compassion to the world, to the ends of the earth. And that's, that's what's at the center of this book in many ways. And uh, to set up what we're going to look at this morning, I, w- I want you to think about the concept of donor intent for a second. Whenever uh, anybody makes a charitable contribution to an organization, they can, they can designate those funds sometimes to uh, go wherever they want that money to go. So, for example, if you donated... to Redeemer because you wanted to sponsor a kid, uh, a high schooler, to go to RYM this summer, then that's what you said that you want that money to do. We can't, I can't take that money and hang out with Ben and we just go get us a fancy dinner at Folks Folly uh, if we wanted to. I mean, that would give us maybe a couple salads anyway if we went there. But, um, um, but the point is if, if, if you give a gift, then you, you can designate where you want it to go. And uh, in the same way, God gives us gifts. He gives us the gift of his grace. It's a 100% free gift, but he does have, there is a donor intention there. He does um, have a desire and an intent of what we do with that grace. And the question is, okay, what? What what does God want us to do with that? And I think Jonah 2 gives us some helpful hints as to what God would want us to do with that grace. So I I really want to look at three things with you this morning for our time together. I want you to see that, going to in, that God intends for us to get in touch with desperation, to get in touch with grace, and then to give them both away. That's what I want to look at. God intends for us to get in touch with desperation, believe it or not. He, he also wants to get in touch with us to get in touch with grace and then to give them both away. Well, what does that mean? Let's look at it. 
What does it mean to get in touch with desperation? Well, if you're, if you're just now joining us, we're in the middle of chapter two, which means we're dropping right into the middle of the story. So what has happened beforehand? Because that would be helpful to know. Um, God, at the beginning of this book, has a strong desire to show his compassion to this foreign city called Nineveh. It's, um, it's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And so God uh, goes to one of his prophets, an Israelite man named Jonah, and says, I want you to go and preach to them so that they'll hear and that they'll turn to me and they'll receive my grace, they'll receive my compassion. But Jonah is not into this plan at all. He thinks that these are wicked, dirty, nasty pagans. He wants nothing to do with them. He wants them to burn. He doesn't want them to receive compassion. And so he goes. He bolts. He goes in the opposite direction, gets on a boat, and flees into the other side of the world, as it were. And God, in his endless mercy, sends this storm while they're on the water to wake Jonah up and to snap him back into reality. And instead of Jonah snapping back into reality, he tells the other sailors on the boat, hey, just throw me into the water. Kill me. Let me drown. Which I think, this is just my opinion, I don't know, but I think if Jonah would have just repented and humbled himself and said, God, what am I doing? You are God and I am not. I don't know what I was thinking running from you. Uh, forgive me for hating your grace. Forgive me for hating my neighbors. Forgive me for prioritizing my needs and the interest of my people over your, your program to bless the world. I think if, if Jonah would have just humbled himself, the storm would have stopped. But he doesn't do that. He chooses the nuclear option and says, uh, guys, just kill me. Throw me into the water. And um, which is a little convenient because he's still getting to opt out of not having to go to Nineveh. He's, he's, still, he's still running. He's still avoiding uh, God's mission to bless other people. And once he hits the water and he starts to sink down and he realizes, oh, my goodness, I'm actually going to die, he uh, cries out for help. He, he changes his mind. He regrets his decision. And what you see is he starts to get in touch with uh, desperation. He cries out for God to help him, and God rescues him in the craziest way by sending this fish to come in to swallow him and to save him. And it's while Jonah is inside of this fish, he prays this prayer, which is all of chapter 2, and you get a little window into Jonah's heart here. So let's just look at it really quick. Look at verse 2. It says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, Sheol in, is, a, is a word in the Hebrew uh, Bible. It's, it's, a, it's a concept that basically means the realm of the dead. It's where, in the Hebrew imagination, uh, the dead were. And so Jonah is like, I, I was in the land of the dead. I was as good as dead. And he cries out. And uh, look at his description in verse 5 of how horrible this experience of drowning would have been like. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. And this is terrifying. Just this vivid picture of utter helplessness. I can't breathe. I don't have access to oxygen. I am completely desperate. I have no resources. I cannot help myself. I'm, I, I'm totally, uh, he's just at the end of his rope here. Now you think, okay, why would God want Jonah to experience this? This was Jonah's decision, but God allowed it and God's using it. So what in the world is God doing? Why does God want Jonah to get in touch with such visceral, terrifying desperation? And I think here's why. 
Because God wants Jonah to realize that he's no different from the Ninevites. It's like God is looking at Jonah and saying, okay, wait, so you want my compassion now. You want me to rescue you now. You want to experience my grace now. Well, guess what, Jonah? You're in the same exact boat that you've always been, which is the same boat that they're in. That every human being is 100% dependent on my compassion and in desperate need of my grace. See, Jonah, Jonah thought he was better than these people. He thought he was the right kind of person because he believed the right things and he did the right things and he came from the right country. He thought he was better than them. He thought he needed less grace than those people. And so it gave him a lot of internal resources to look down his nose at, at these people who are less than him. And Jonah bring, God brings Jonah to this place of desperation to say, hey, maybe y'all are the same. Maybe you're just as much in need of grace as they are. Because here's what, here's what desperation can do if you'll let it. Desperation can humble you. It can make you realize, okay, I'm, I'm in the same boat as every other person on this planet. I'm struggling. Life is hard for me. And maybe it's hard for everyone else too. And it can open you up to empathy where you can begin to say, okay, maybe, maybe I should probably be kind to people. Maybe, maybe people are having a harder time than I, than I realized. Desperation can humble you and it can open you up if you'll let it. Uh, I came across this article that was written in the New York, it was a New York Times op-ed piece that was written at the end of 2020. You think about, okay, what happened in 2020? March is when we, when the world shut down on our end of things over here, and then the, the year happened, and um, the New York Times uh, asked its readers to submit summaries of their experience of the pandemic, but they said, your summaries can only be six words long. And so there's thousands of people that wrote these six-word little summaries of 2020, and some of them were pretty hilarious. Here's, here's just a few. They, they posted, they you know, had this list of all of these, kind of their favorite submissions, and here, here's a few that I thought were funny. Six-word summaries. Left house, forgot mask, turned around. <laughs> that's, that's 2020. Uh, here's another one. Learning to smile with my eyes. You read like that. So, you know, you have these, you have these masks, and I, I just remember that summer meeting many of you for the first time where it's like, I don't even know how to greet you. It's, I'm trying to raise my eyebrows, trying to let people, I, so I get it. And this is my favorite one, which is the name of the article, and it goes like this. Showers and pants are so 2019. No one wore pants after March, apparently. We were just all on Zoom, and there was no need. So, um, but this list of all of these summaries of the pandemic, and it, it interlaced throughout of them, was, was some that were just incredibly devastating as well. Some that you read, and you're just, you just feel the weight of it. Here's a few. How will my broken heart mend? Healthcare workers have no breaks. Here's one I thought was really poignant. COVID, Floyd, fires, I can't breathe. Here's another. Graduated college in my living room. This is my least favorite one. Last one I'll read you. My dad's last breath on FaceTime. 
you read that list and it just makes you think about how devastating the past almost two years has been on people. And I read that list and I was just thinking about my own experience and I was thinking just as, uh, as one of your pastors, I have the unique privilege of getting to hear many of your stories. Many of you have given me the honor of sharing parts of your life and just opening up little windows of what's going on with you. And you think about the amount of burdens and pain that's even just present in this room. It can be overwhelming at times when I just think about, good grief, your stories can be so uh, heavy. It just feels like it's, it's just, it can feel like it's just too much. There's just too much pain in the world because even in this room, there are overwhelming stories of loneliness and shame and uh, loss and addiction and depression and guilt and, and chronic health stuff and sickness. And it, it makes me think of this quote. I don't know who said it. I don't know who came up with it. Uh, but the quote goes, be kind for, what is it? Be kind for everyone you meet is carrying a heavy burden. Be kind for everyone you meet is carrying a heavy burden. We do a pretty good job of presenting ourselves well. We hide our burdens from each other. But the reality is everybody in this room is carrying around heavy burdens, myself included. Everybody in this neighborhood, everybody on this planet. And when you begin to realize, okay, everybody else is struggling like me, even the people who look like they're just gliding effortless, effortlessly through life, they have burdens that they're carrying as well. And when you begin to realize that, doesn't that open you up to empathy a little bit? Where I think this is what God is doing to Jonah. This is what God is doing to us. He's, he's looking at Jonah and he's looking at us and saying, guys, be, be kind. Jonah, why are you so angry with these people? Why are you rooting for them to be destroyed? They have the same burdens that you do. You are just as much in the need of grace and compassion as they are. But here's the reality. We, I think we actually need more than desperation. Desperation is helpful for us to get in touch with. But desperation also has the power to make us less sympathetic. It can make us more bitter, more jaded, more angry. And so we need to not just experience desperation. We also need to get in touch with grace. And so that's the second thing that we're, that we're going to see. God doesn't just want Jonah and us to get in touch with desperation. There's no life-transforming power with that alone. We also need grace. And so look at, um, look at how the story goes. Jonah is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. He cries out for God to listen. And look at verse 2. It says he, it says, he says that God heard my voice. God does not turn a deaf ear to this man who has been running from him, uh, rebelling against him. He hears him. He responds to him, and then he rescues him. Look at verse 6. At, when I was at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, and yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He says, he, he gives this poetic image that he was at the roots of the mountain, which is like a way of saying, I have hit rock bottom at the ocean floor. I can't get any lower. And he says, it, it felt like bars were closing in on me, like, like a prison door was just slamming in my face, and I'm, and I'm locked in this claustrophobic, watery death prison where I'm just suffocating until I, until I die. And God, by <laughs> astounding grace, rescues Jonah from Jonah again. 
And he sends this fish that goes all the way down. It's like the fish bursts through the prison doors and swallows him and rescues him. Now, you, you hear that and you think, wait, that doesn't sound like salvation to me. If, if I'm in the ocean and I see a massive animal coming towards me and it eats me alive... Uh, that does not look and feel like salvation. That's, I'm, that's game over. We're done here. And yet, this, as God tends to do, reverses all of our expectations, that he takes this vehicle of death, this monstrous fish, and it becomes this pathway for Jonah's life into this landscape of death. God sends a vehicle of death, and it brings about life. Now, you hear these themes, and these themes should begin to resonate with you is because what, what the story really is doing is pointing you forward to a bigger, more ultimate story of rescue. Because the reality is, the Bible says, you and I are just like Jonah, that we, we've, we are sinking down in our own despair, and we're as good as dead. In fact, the Bible says we, we are dead. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And if I can even compare... Jesus to a fish, which I'm going to, it's like Jesus is this, Jesus is the fish in this story who comes all the way down to rescue us. And the way that he rescues us is through this, this instrument of death, through a cross, which is intended to annihilate somebody, to wipe them off the face of the planet. And rather than bringing about destruction, it brings about life. God enters into a landscape of death with a vehicle of death, and it becomes the very thing that saves us and brings us from death to life. And you think, okay, how in the world does that happen? How does that work? When you bring your desperation to Jesus, it's like God hooks up your desperation to the very story of Jesus. So Jesus was brought from death to life. He was crucified, and he rose again. And when you get hooked up to that story, that's what happens to you. You get brought from death to life. And you think, okay, why? Why does God do this? Because what was Jonah doing when he was sinking down? He was not saying, God, if you save me, I'm going to pray more. If you just get me out of this jam this one time, I promise I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to go to church a lot more. I'm going to give some money away to charity. No, he just got so in touch with desperation. He said, God, I'm going to die unless you do something. That's what faith is. Faith is when you look at God and say, I'm, I have no more resources. I'm at the bottom of the ocean. I can't think my way out of this. I can't behave my way out of this. I am 100% at your mercy. When God is responded to like that, he always without fails responds with compassion. That's who he is. He extends grace. He rescues people that are desperate, even people who have jacked up motives saying, help, help, help. He rescues us. When you start to get in touch with grace, that changes everything because that changes the way that you see other people. You don't just see other people as fellow sufferers, though that's true, but you begin to see other people as fellow sinners, and you begin to have kindness and compassion, not just because somebody else is struggling in the same way that you might be, but you have compassion on other people because you realize that when you were at the bottom of the ocean, God was compassionate towards you. This obliterates any resources that you might have thought you had to look down your nose at other people. 
you, you are in the same boat. You are 100%. You have survived only by grace. And grace gives you this internal animating energy to compel you to want to give compassion, to want to give mercy for the very people that have really done horrible things. You don't see yourself as better than them anymore. You don't begin to say, well, at least I haven't done that. I'm not ex- I haven't done this, that, or the other. You say, we're the same. I may not have done the same thing that you've done, but that, whatever you did is in my heart as well. Grace changes everything. God wants us to get in touch with desperation, and he wants us to get in touch with grace. And then here's the last thing. He doesn't want us to hold these things onto our, you know, hold on to them. He wants us to share them both, give them both away. And you think, what, what does that even mean? What does that look like to share your desperation? What does it look like to share the grace that you've been given? Well, remember, this is God's uh, donor intent, if I could put it this way. And here's where Jonah, I think, falls really short. Because he got in touch with desperation for a moment, but he didn't want to live like that. He got in touch with grace for a moment when God rescued him. But as you're going to see in a second, God, Jonah does not want other people to experience grace. He still doesn't get it. This prayer, in my opinion, is really just empty religious jargon. He's just saying a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo, but it hasn't really saturated his heart yet. And let me show you what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. First of all, if you look through this prayer, Jonah never says that he's sorry. He does not admit once or come to terms with the fact of how arrogant he is, how self-righteous he is, how rebellious he is, how much he hates his enemies. He, uh, he just didn't want to die. <laughs> but there's, that's not heartfelt contrition. That's not repentance. Here's the second thing. Look at verse 4. See if you find this as interesting as I did. He prays, God, I am driven away from your sight. Is that how this story went? No, I think Jonah packed up his stuff and ran away from God's sight and then told other people to throw him in the ocean. He's completely rewriting the narrative and making himself out to be the victim. And look at this last thing. Look at verse 8. This is a very strange thing to throw into a prayer that you're, when you're thanking God for rescuing you. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Ninevites. They're the ones that worship idols. They're these idol-worshiping you know, Gentile pagans, and he says, they who worship those idols, they forsake the hope of steadfast love because look at how terrible they are, but not me. Look at verse 7. He says, not me. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came before you. You saved me. Here's the point. Jonah is still living under this illusion that he's better than them. He, he got in touch with desperation for a second, but he doesn't want to live there. And he loves the idea of grace for him in this moment, but he does not want them to experience grace. He wants karma for them, grace for himself. And again, this is, this, this is not God's intent. God's donor intent when he gives grace is for us to give it away. So what does it look like? What would it mean for us to share our desperation? And what would it look like for us to share that grace that we've been given? Well, let's do those one at a time. What what does it look like for us to share our desperation? Think about the stories that we tell, especially about ourselves. If you're anything like me, 
uh, you curate a certain image of yourself for the world to see. The pictures that we post are filtered. The image that we present in public is fairly manicured. Um, the, uh, the, the, what we lead with is with our competence and with our strength and with our success. And you think, does that, does that bless people? Or does it just give people um, opportunities to feel jealous for us? What if the greatest gift that we had to give other people was not our stories of awesomeness, but our honest stories of desperation? What if people actually begin to see us as weak, as desperate for the grace of God? Not so that they would pity us, not so that we might win some sick competition of who's suffered more, me or you, me. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being vulnerable. I'm talking about being authentic. I'm talking about being honest so that when somebody else sees your struggles, they might feel the freedom to say, yeah, me too. Yeah, I, um, I didn't know we could be honest about that. What if the greatest gift that the church could give to the world is not this declaration of how much better we are than the world around us, but a way of saying we are just as much, if not more, in need of the grace and compassion of God? That might be one idea of what it looks like to share our desperation. What does it look like to share the grace that we've been given? Well, if... Um, you, you're like me and you read the story, you begin to think, good grief, I'm a lot more like Jonah than I think I am, than I want to admit I am. Because if I'm honest, I love grace for me. I want God to be lenient with me. I'm, I don't want him to be lenient on other people, though. I want him to be hard on other people, especially people that have hurt me, especially people that I disagree with. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, are, are you like Jonah in the sense that you want to hoard grace for yourself, love it for you, but not for that person that hurts you, not for that person that disagrees with you politically, not for that person that has a view of COVID that you think is crazy or harmful, not for that person that lives a lifestyle that you think is totally immoral, that person that thinks that the Bible that you love and believe is a total joke. Do you want other people to experience the sweetness of grace in the same way that you have? Part of it is learning to share it hoping and praying for God to be lenient and compassionate to others in the same way that you've experienced it as well. It's part of what it might mean to share our desperation, to share our great, to share the grace that he's given us. Here's the last thing I'll say and I'm done. Last thought. Uh, I came across this video recently of um, a 2016 Ryder Cup. This was during the like practice round and uh, there were some Europeans that were trying to sink this putt, this 12-foot putt that they were out on the green. You know, they're they're uh, struggling to get this putt in. And there's, you know, there's a gallery. There's, a, uh, there's people there that are watching this and cheering for them. And they keep struggling with this putt over and over and over. And in the crowd, there's uh, an American who's heckling them, which is, um, you know, typical in one sense and not great for our national uh, reputation. They have the American, he's shouting, I can sink that putt. I can do it better than you. And uh, in the midst of all of this, while the Europeans are, 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 are trying to do it, um, 
somebody on the team goes over and gets the guy out of the crowd and hands him the club and says, okay, you do it, and brings the guy out onto the green, and the guy's like, I was not, uh, I was not expecting this. I was uh, stuck my neck out. I didn't know that this is what heckling would get me. But he, he's out there, and now all the, all the spotlight is on him. And he's there, and uh, one of the other Europeans think this is funny, and he takes a $100 bill, kind of lays it down next to, the, next to the hole just to kind of up the ante and sweeten the deal. And this guy's name is uh, David Johnson. And he's there. All the spotlight is on him. He was not prepared for this. Takes the club, and uh, he's looking. This is being televised. There's a crowd of people. The hush falls on the crowd, and he's sizing it up and puts it, and it rolls, and it goes in, and the place goes nuts, and everybody's losing their mind. And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing little story. It was all in good fun, and the, the Europeans, they you know, signed their name and gave them the 100 bucks. And, um, but what I think is so great about the story is here you have this guy who's making these claims. I can do it. I can sink it. And so somebody said, okay, prove it. Show us that you can do it. In that way, because if you're a Christian this morning, I know not everybody is, but if you're, if you're identifying as a Christian this morning, you are claiming to yourself and to the world that you have a great need for a Savior and that you have a great Savior for your need. That's what a Christian is, someone who is desperate for grace and someone who has it in Jesus. And it's like God looks at you and me, and with a smile on his face, he says, okay. Prove it. Show me. Show the, wor- show the world then. If that's who you are, show the world how desperate you are for that grace. And show the world how beautiful and sufficient my grace is for your desperation. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that in your kindness you use um, desperate moments as painful and as horrible and as heavy as they are, that you use them to get us in touch with need and to get us in touch with you. And Father, I pray in a mysterious way that would you train us and would you help us to lean into that weakness, to lean into that need, to not be afraid of it, um, to fight the instincts that we have to... Uh, paper mache over our lives and make them seem more beautiful and put together than they actually are and help us to lean uh, more courageously into your grace for us and your grace for our friends and our neighbors who might not know that grace yet. Help us to live out the very things that we might claim to believe because you are good and your grace is that sweet to our souls. Thank you that you love us, even when we run from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.